Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. That's what we're kind of reaching here at this point in the narrative of the children of Israel in the, in the wilderness. And so beginning with verse 20, chapter 1, excuse me, <laughs> verse 1, chapter 20, a little backwards there. Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. So this is chronologically, this would be the first month of the 40th year after the children of Israel had left Egypt. So they're getting to the end of their wilderness wandering. It's not going to be too much longer in the story before they go into the promised land. 38 years ago, Numbers chapter 13 occurred. 38 years ago. 38 years ago, they were at this same place. And they had an opportunity to go into the promised land to take possession of it, but they refused because of their disbelief. And so as a result of that, the Lord sent them to wander in the wilderness for another, uh, what would be end up being another 38 years until that whole generation of people that disbelieved, that didn't, they grumbled and they complained and they didn't believe what God would do until that generation died. And so here, Miriam, she dies. She's part of that generation that would not enter the promised land. What do we know about Miriam? Well, the first time, she's not mentioned by name, but when you go to the story of, of Noah, excuse me, of Moses, as a little child, his mother, because they're in Egypt, the, the, the Pharaoh has demanded that, that any male babies um, born to the, to the uh, Hebrew women would be drowned in the river. And so his mother, um, Jochebed, as we find out her name is, uh, she takes the baby uh, Moses, puts him in a, in a little, like a little basket and uh, kind of a mini ark sort of thing and floats him in the river among the reeds in the Nile River and tells his sister, who we know from scripture to be Miriam, we believe from scripture to be Miriam, to keep an eye on the baby. And Miriam in Exodus 2 verse 8, she's referred to as a maiden. And so in maiden in the, in the Hebrew, that actually means a young woman old enough to be married. So again, we don't know exactly how old Miriam is, but we can say for sure that she's at least 10 years older than, uh, than Moses, probably a little bit older, but at least 10 years older than Moses. Um, we find out again, as a young woman, she's watching over Moses and you know what courage she displayed to go to Pharaoh's daughter and talk to her when, when Pharaoh's daughter discovers uh, baby Moses there floating in the Nile and what wisdom she has to suggest, hey, do you need a, a Hebrew mother to nurse this baby? Uh, all along, it, it ends up being Moses' mother. And you know, just the, the courage and the wisdom that's displayed by Miriam there is amazing. She actually is the first female prophet in or prophetess in the in the Bible. Also in Micah chapter six verse four, we read that God had chose her and Aaron to assist Moses in leading the children of Israel. So she actually had a leadership position among the children of Israel. And when they cross uh, the Red Sea, she ends up leading the women of the of the children of Israel into uh, worshiping the Lord there on the other side of the Red Sea. 
So we see these great qualities in Miriam, and yet not too many weeks ago as we read, we studied the chapter that dealt with the issue when her and Aaron uh, rebel against Moses' leadership. And uh, we find out that it's Miriam who's basically the instigator because God punishes Miriam, doesn't punish Aaron. So it, it seems to Im indicate that Miriam was the instigator. And what was the issue? She was jealous of Moses. And she ended up getting struck with leprosy as a result of that. Um, she is healed, but she ends up having to remain outside of the camp of Israel for seven days. She's quarantined. People were actually quarantined back in those days as well. So she's isolated for seven days. And it, that was actually a shameful thing for her to have to bear that and have to be segregated from all the people. But she's part of that generation that dies in the wilderness. And you know, the other day or the other week, we talked about what what is a picture the will of the of the land of Canaan, the promised land. It really is a picture of the deeper spiritual walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, a spirit-filled walk with the Lord. That's what it's a picture of. And so we find it, we come to a lesson here. Basically, unresolved jealousy, it's gonna keep you and it's gonna keep me from a deeper walk with Christ. It'll keep us from a deeper walk with Christ if you're jealous about someone. Why would it keep you from a deeper walk with Christ? Well, think about it. If you're jealous of someone, it's really, truly hard to love them with Christ's love and the love of Christ when you're jealous of them. Because things happen good to them, you're kind of like bummed out a little bit. It's like, man, it should have happened to me. And so it's hard to love someone with Christ's love when you're jealous of them. And ultimately, what it boils down to, too, is you're dissatisfied with what God has for you in your life when you're jealous of someone else. So it boils down to a complaint about the Lord. You're dissatisfied with the Lord. So unresolved jealousy, it's going to keep you from a deeper walk with the Lord. Well, let's continue on here. Verse 2, now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, if only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our animals should die here? And, you, and why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. Listen, lack of water is a serious issue. It's a legitimate issue that they have. They don't have water at this point in this place. And so it's a legitimate need. But here's the deal. Man, 38 years ago, they were at the same place. And so they forgot. 38 years ago, they forgot how the Lord provided for them. And instead, they complained exactly the way they complained 38 years ago when the Lord proved faithful back then. You know, sometimes you think, uh, you know, I, I want to be a better person. And, you know, over time, I'm going to get better. Or, you know, sometimes we think, give that person some time, they'll mature and stuff. You know, time does not necessarily mature a person. I just got to just just some advice for all of us. But basically, if you want to be a better person later on, start being a better person now. If you want to be, a, um, you know, I, I just want to be a student of the word. You know, I, I hope to really be a student of the word. Man, start doing it now. I want to be a witness for Christ. I want to evangelize. Start doing it now. 
I want to be more patient. We'll start being patient now. So time doesn't necessarily mature a person. The other thing that we kind of see out of this too is, you know, we need to be vigilant because that temptation to grumble or complain is always there. I struggle with it. I'm sure you do too. We can never let our vigilance down. It reminds me of what the Lord told Cain when Cain was jealous of, of Abel and killed Abel. You know, the Lord said to Cain, hey, sin lies at the door and it's waiting. Basically, he says sin lies at the door and its desire is for you but you should rule over it. You can never let your vigilance down when it comes to sin. The temptation is always there. Now, one of the things, because 38 years have transpired since uh, the last time they complained here, sometimes people go, well, well is, this really the, is this really that generation or is it the children of those parents that are complaining here? And I've, I've come across both things in, in different uh, uh, places where I've tried to figure that out. Uh, we don't know for sure. But I think it actually is the, com the, the generation that's going to die in this wilderness. But it could be their children. And if that's the case, you know, it kind of makes, it, it would make sense to me, I guess. Um, you know, sometimes when we complain, or I wouldn't say sometimes, if, if, we're, if our household is a household where we like complain about people, you know, you come home from church, man, I can't believe that person did this or that. And, you know, we start complaining about people or we judge people or, uh, you know, gossiping about people. If you do that in the home, your children are going to pick up on it. I guarantee your children are going to pick up on it. It's going to affect them. You know, uh, we as parents always want to pass our good habits down to our children. And sometimes when the Lord is just, when the Lord just merciful, sometimes our children pick up those good habits. But you know what? Sin is kind of like water. It finds the least path of resistance. It just it trickles wherever it is. And, and bad habits, you can guarantee they'll pass through generations. They, they will. It's, they, they're much more easily than good habits. And so it could be the children. And they've just grown up in a complaining, grumbling household. And now they're grumbling and complaining. It could be. It, it would fit, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Verse 6, so Moses and Aaron went, before, uh, went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. You know, here we go. Again, what I love about Moses, he's true to character. There's, there's something that Moses always does. I mentioned it last week or a couple weeks ago. There's something that Abraham always did. Abraham always built altars. Wherever he went, he was building an altar to the Lord. Moses, wherever he is, he comes in a situation, he falls on his face before the Lord. What a good example for us. And so he goes, they fall before the Lord. In verse 7, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the rod, uh, you and your brother Aaron, and you and your brother Aaron, uh, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its wa water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So here the Lord says, take the rod. And remember the rod, it budded. Remember it was, it was Aaron's rod and it budded before the Lord. It was basically a symbol that, that God had given delegated authority to Aaron over those the others that were trying to, uh, they were competing for him for, for leadership in Israel among the Levites. So take that rod 
speak to the rock before their eyes. So this is what God's commanded him. So far, so good, right? Moses has prayed. The Lord's given him clear instructions what to do. Um, verse 9. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, here now, you rebels. Must we bear water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Wow. Moses clearly disobeyed the Lord, and look what happened. Water came out of the rock abundantly. You know what that tells me is that God uses imperfect people. He really does. He uses imperfect people to do his will. And, uh, you know, another thing that this tells me is if God chooses to bless a ministry or chooses to do a sign or a wonder through uh, some person that's ministering, it does not necessarily mean that that person's like super spiritual walking with God, you know, like he's such a great guy, the Lord's choosing to work through him. In fact, it, it doesn't mean that at all. There's no evidence that the instruments he uses are, are walking, you know, with God's heart. And here Moses is obviously not, he doesn't have the Lord's heart in this issue. And yet God in his mercy, he still does this blessing in spite of Moses because God loves the people. And so we get to verse 12. Uh, then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. So now Moses is told, you're not going into the promised land either, Moses. Verse 13, this was the water of Meribah because the children of Israel contended with the Lord and he was hallowed among them. What was Moses's sin? Well, first of all, it kind of comes out in, in the, in the narr narrative, he was angry. You know, he says, you rebels. Uh, that's not what the Lord said, but that's what Moses said. In Psalm 106, we get a commentary of this. Verse 32, verse 33, it says, they angered him also at the waters of strife, so that it went ill with Moses on account of them, because they rebel re rebelled against his spirit, so that he spoke rashly with his lips. So Moses is angry. He speaks out with rash towards the children of Israel. You might say, you know what? He had a reason to be angry. These guys are always grumbling and complaining. But you know what James says, one verse, chapter 1, verse 19 to 20. He says, so then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so Moses is angry. And he says something that he shouldn't have said. James 3.2 says this, For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. You know, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. And here Moses is obviously not exercising self-control. He got angry. He blurted out those words to the children of Israel. Um, you know, for you and I, uncontrolled anger will also keep us out of relationship with, you know, walking with the Lord uh, in that deeper walk. If we're always just flying off the handle, we're not able to control our, our anger, our temper. 
It's, it'll keep you and I from that deeper walk with the Lord. And so Moses, he's angry. He blurts out stuff to the children of Israel. His anger basically turns to pride because look what he says. He says, must we bring water out of the rock? As if he had anything to do with it, right? I like what Paul says about ministry. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 and 7, Paul says this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then he uh, so then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Paul had the right idea. You know, whether God blesses the ministry or whatever, whoever, whoever's involved in whatever thing, it's not me, it's God who does the work. And so Moses here, his anger turns to pride. Must we bring water out of the rock as if he had anything really to do with it? And here's the next point. Spiritual pride will keep you and I, it'll hinder us from a deeper walk with Christ. Why do I say that? Because Psalm 138 verse 6 says, Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. You want to draw close to the Lord? Man, get rid of that spiritual pride. Get rid of it. So anger and pride on Moses' part, it resulted in him disobeying God's command. He was just to speak to the rock, but instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes the rock, not once, but twice. And that was that butted rod. Remember I mentioned earlier is the rod that represented God's delegated authority. So he is in a sense, in a real sense, representing God before the people. And in this case, he's misrepresenting God to the people. Now, to be fair, God had been angry with the children of Israel more than once. In fact, there was a couple times when he said, stand back and let me consume them and I'll make a nation out of you, Moses. But he didn't do that here. He wasn't angry with the people there. God simply said, speak to the rock this time. But the problem was Moses was angry. He had reached his limit. He didn't want God's people to experience God's mercy in this case. And so instead of granting grace and mercy like God was doing to the children of Israel, he, was, he expressed anger and misrepresented God to, the Lord, or God to the people and disobeyed the Lord. And to make matters worse, he also misrepresented God in a prophetic way too. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ was the rock that followed them in the wilderness. And remember 38 years ago, when they were in the same situation, what did the Lord say? The Lord said, strike the rock. And he struck the rock and water poured out. And now he says, just speak to the rock. In order to experience God's mercy and the flowing of his water, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit, just speak to the rock and it'll come out. But you know what? Anger, pride, and disobedience are going to result in you and I from going into that deeper walk with the Lord. And it kept Moses out of the promised land as well. Why, is, why was that a prophetic? Why, why did he misrepresent God in a prophetic way? Because, you see, Jesus Christ is that rock. And he was struck once for your and my sins. He, doesn't, he is not crucified over and over again. He was crucified once and now for you and I to receive that blessing from the Lord, that relationship with the Lord, we just speak to, we just confess to him and receive him into our heart. And so that was the picture that the Bible is pointing here. But Moses misrepresented the Lord there. And so as a result of that, he too will be part of that generation that won't enter the promised land. So we move on from here. 
And I don't know how long of much time has elapsed from then, but verse 14, it says, Now Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, You know all the hardship that has befallen us, how our fathers went down to Egypt, and we dwelt in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. When we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and uh, sent the angel and brought us up out of Egypt. Now here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your border. Please let us pass through your country. We will not pass through fields or vineyards, nor will we drink from uh, water from wells. We will go along the king's highway." We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. The Edomites, the king of Edom, the Edomites, they, Edomites, they descended from Esau, which was Jacob or Israel's twin brother. And he says, you know, just let us pass through your land. We're not going to take any resources. We're just going to go along the king's highway. King's highway, what is that? It actually was a road that went from the Gulf of Aqaba to Damascus on the east side of the Jordan River. And we go right up straight through past Petra. Uh, if you know, if you're familiar with the geography where that is. So this was, a, in that time, day and age, that was a well-known road. Kind of reminds me of back in California, uh, there's a road that's literally called El Camino Real. And uh, in San Jose, where I grew up, there was an El Camino Real. It's a road right through San Jose. Well, actually, it's a road that's a 600-mile trail or path um, that connects all the missions in California. Um, that, the, that the Spanish built throughout California. And that's called the El Camino Real, the King's Highway, basically. And so uh, kind of interesting, kind of when I read that, I'm like, oh, yeah, that sounds familiar. But that's not where Moses was. He wasn't in California. <laughs> uh, so they ask uh, the Edomites, which is they're distantly related to the Israelites. They ask them, hey, let us just pass through your land. Verse 18, then Edom said to him, you shall not pass through my land, lest I come out against you with the sword. So the children of Israel said to him, we will go by the highway, and if I or my livestock drink any of your water, then I will pay for it. Uh, let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. And he said, you shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with many men and, a strong, and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. This is one of the cases where Moses wasn't instructed to fight the Edomites. In fact, in Deuteronomy 23, verse 7, the Lord told Moses this. He said, you shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall, abhor, you shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were an alien in his land. And so what the Lord is basically telling Moses is, Moses, just leave them alone. Just let me deal with them. You don't have to deal with them yourself. And here's another point for you and I with our deeper walk with the Lord. And I think we all want a deeper walk with the Lord, don't we? Outside influences may try to hinder or keep you from a deeper walk with Christ. And here's the lesson, man. Don't let them cause you to sin. If you're dealing with someone, someone's just kind of messing with you, just leave it to the Lord. Allow the Lord to take care of it. Don't take matters into your own hand. And so Moses is not instructed to do anything to the, in fact, he's told them to just basically leave them alone. Verse 22, now the children of Israel, the whole congregation journeyed from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. 
And then the Lord spoke to Moses and, and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Uh, take Aaron and Eleazar his son, and bring them up to Mount Hor, and strip Aaron of his garments, and put them on Eleazar his son, for Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded, and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments, and put them on Eleazar his son, and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. Now when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron 30 days. Here's another person that's not going to be allowed to enter the promised land. They will die as well. And it's because of that incident at Meribah. Well, you know, when you look at the life of Aaron... And you look at all the different times where he's brought up. Aaron doesn't seem to openly rebel. It's not like leading a rebellion against anybody. But you know what? There's a couple times when he participates in some pretty bad things. For example, when the children of Israel, they start complaining that Moses has gone too long, then what does Aaron do? He makes a calf, a golden calf for the children of Israel to worship. He didn't lead a rebellion, but he participated. When Miriam was jealous of the Lord, or excuse me, of Moses, Aaron, obviously, Aaron wasn't the one that was punished. It was, it was Miriam. She's the one that instigated it, and yet he was a participant. By his silence in the incident there where Moses strikes the rock, it's as if Aaron basically, even though he didn't outright do it himself, he tacitly endorsed Moses's disobedience. You know, he stood there and didn't do anything. He didn't say anything. And so as a result, he's also punished by not being allowed to enter Canaan. Do you go along with the crowd when the crowd is in rebellion? Do you go along with them or do you stand for righteousness? Because just being a participant, not standing up, will also hinder you from that deeper walk with the Lord. You know, you look at Aaron Aaron was a human person. He was a human high priest with human failings. I like what Hebrews tells us. Hebrews 5 verse 2, speaking about human priests, says he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. You know, Aaron was the picture of Jesus and yet Aaron was human. He was weak. He had failings. But then in Hebrews 7, verse 26, it speaks about you're my high priest, Jesus Christ. He says, for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. We have a better high priest in Jesus Christ. You know, here's another thing that jumps out at me. The Lord tells Moses that Aaron is going to be gathered to his people. I don't know if you've read through the Old Testament, but that occurs lots of times in the Old Testament where the Lord says, so and so they died and they were gathered to their people. You remember the incident when David, uh, he sinned with Bathsheba. They had a child um, through an adulterous relationship and the Lord uh, told that, uh, David that, that the child was going to die. And uh, David at one point there after the child does in fact die, he says this, he says, I shall go to him 
but he shall not return to me. Moses was, or David was basically saying, I'm going to go to where my child is. And you know, that should be a comfort for believers because this is what I think. I think based on scriptures like this, when a believer dies and, uh, you know, another family member who has a relationship with the Lord dies, they're going to spend time in eternity together. You're going to see your loved ones again. You know, the Bible says, Jesus says, you know, I go to prepare a place in my father's house is many mansions, right? And, and, and you think about that, uh, you know, I don't think God's going to put you and I in a, like, we're going to be roommates with someone from the third century, you know, in heaven. It's like, here's your buddy, you know, I, I don't know, what was your life like, you know? I think we're going to be surrounded by our loved ones. And, and I don't know about you, but that gives me comfort. When I, when I lose a loved one that I know has a relationship with the Lord, and I know I have a relationship with the Lord, it's like, man, I'm going to see them again. And so just a, a comfort. Um, Aaron shall be gathered to his people. So Aaron, the first high priest, dies. Hebrews 7, verse 23 and 24 says this, Also there were many priests, because they were prevented by death from continuing. But then speaking about Jesus, he continues forever. He has an unchangeable priesthood. Man, our high priest, he doesn't fail. He doesn't die. He is a high priest today. David Guzik says this about what we've just been reading. Moses, Miriam, and Aaron dying. Moses, he says, represented the law, and the law couldn't lead him into the promised land. Miriam, who represents the prophets, couldn't lead them into the promised land. And Aaron, who represents the priests, also could not lead them into the promised land. The law, the prophets, and the priests couldn't lead the children of Israel into the promised land. Only Joshua could. When we get to the book of Joshua, it'll be an exciting time to study. Joshua, by the way, is the Hebrew name for Jesus. Only Jesus could lead them into the land of God's promise. I like that. Let's move on here into chapter 21. The king of Ered, the Canaanite, who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road to Etherim. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them in their cities. So the name of that place was called Hormah. What a difference! They weren't, to, they weren't to mess with the Edomites, but now the king of Arad, a Canaanite, kind of does the same thing, only he goes a step further. He fights against the children of Israel, and he takes some of, their, some of them uh, prisoner. You know, you might say, wow, that's pretty hard that God would command the children of Israel or allow them to destroy the Canaanites the way they did. Listen, the Canaanites were very, very wicked Archaeologists have, have dug up Canaanite dwelling places and they found infants that were entombed in the foundations basically as a sacrifice. You, you build a house and you would sacrifice your, your, your baby. You'd put your baby in, into the foundation, uh, kind of good luck, I guess, or whatever they did. Very wicked, the Canaanites would do. They were the ones that would sacrifice their children to Moloch. In the fires, the Bible talks about passing their children through the fire. That's exactly what they do. Human sacrifices of innocent children. And the Canaanites were very perverse as far as sexual immorality. These were very wicked, wicked people. Interesting, at the end of that verse 3, it says the name of that, they call the name of that place Hormah. Hormah comes 
from a root word. The, the word means devote, and it comes from a root word meaning to devote to destruction. This is what the Lord told the children of Israel regarding the Canaanites. De Deuteronomy 7, verse 16. Also you shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Your eyes shall not have pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. See, the Canaanites, they wanted to destroy the Israelites. They took some of them captive. The question you and I are asked, or the, the rhetorically, do you tolerate those things that would destroy you, or do you devote them to destruction? The things that are out to get us, so those sins that would just tear apart our lives and tear apart us, do we devote them to destruction, or do we compromise with them? Verse 4, Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And so the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Wow, that's pretty, pretty severe. Listen, they couldn't go through Edom, right? Because the Edomites said, you're not coming through our land. And so they had to go around the land of Edom. So it's going to take them longer now to go around. Instead of taking a shortcut, it's, it's going to be just that much longer to go through, the children, uh, go through to get to the land of Canaan. They're close there. And they're going to be there shortly, but not soon enough for the people. And so as the people became very discouraged on the way. You know, when you read that in the New King James, it sounds like, man, oh, yeah. I mean, I could, I could see them being discouraged. You know, you're, here you are. You're still trudging through the wilderness. But you know what the word actually means? It means they were impatient. That's what it literally means. They became impatient on the way. And impatience is a heart issue. Look what comes up out of their impatience. There they say at the end of verse 5, for there is no food and water and our soul loathes this worthless bread. You know what they're talking about? They're talking about the manna. The manna that the Lord provided faithfully the 40 years that they wandered through the wilderness, they never lacked. God provided them the manna day in and day out enough for everybody to eat. In fact, Psalm 78, 24 and 25 says this, that he had rained down manna on them and gave uh, on them to eat and given them of the bread of heaven. Men ate angels' food. He sent them food to the full. The Bible tells us that, that the manna, it had a kind of a sweet flavor, kind of like honey. And yet they call it worthless. Worthless means miserable, unappetizing, unattractive, and barely edible. Wow. What an attitude that they had regarding what God had blessed them with. But you see, that's what happens when you become impatient. Impatience is a heart issue, and it has to be dealt with. The Lord's going to deal with it. Look at verse 6. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Now, does that mean that the like flaming serpents that were wandering through the you know through the sand and stuff, uh, fiery serpents? What does that mean? I don't know, but it could mean the burning sensation that they received from the venom of these poisonous uh, when they got bit by these poisonous snakes. 
So they get bit, and people start dying. Many of the children of Israel died. Verse 7, Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. So it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So what's taking place here? The children of Israel, man, they've grown impatient. They've complained. They've sinned. I mean, look at the ugliness of their heart is coming out. And then they start getting bitten by these snakes. And many of them start dying. And the, what they do, it's the right thing. They confess. Man, we've sinned. We've sinned against the Lord. We've sinned against you, Moses. And then Moses prays for them. So we have confession. We have prayer. And as a result, the Lord says, hey, I want you to make a bronze serpent. What was a bronze serpent? What was that all about? Well, a bronze serpent, it would have been cast in fire. And fire is a picture of judgment in the Bible. And you go, well, why a serpent? Well, it kind of reminds you back of what happened in the Garden of Eden, right? When, the, when the, uh, Eve was tempted by basically the devil. The devil disguised or, or in the form of a serpent uh, deceived Eve. She sinned. And the sin was to rebel against the Lord. So there's a picture that's being painted here. And so they're to cast this bronze serpent and put it on a pole. That word pole in the Hebrew, what it means, it's, a, it's, it's the kind of pole that a standard or a flag uh, or a sail would be attached to and then lifted up. So if you think about it, um, it probably is kind of in the form of a cross, basically. Jesus, when he was speaking to Nicodemus, in the New Testament, in John chapter 3, Jesus is telling Nicodemus how to be born again and that a person must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus alludes back to this, uh, this story here in Numbers chapter 21. In John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, it says, as, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So here Jesus is comparing himself to the snake in Numbers 21. The Bible says, speaking of Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And so whoever would have been bitten by the fiery serpents, what did they do? They had to look by faith to this picture, this symbol of a judged serpent up on a pole, this bronze serpent. And once they looked to this serpent, they would be healed. There's a picture that's being painted here for you and I. All of us have been bitten by sin. And it's deadly. There's no antidote. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. But Jesus Christ became sin for us. And he was lifted up from the earth onto a cross, and he died in your my place. That's the picture that's being painted here. The only cure for us is to look to Jesus Christ, who took our punishment, who was cursed for us, 
who took on our sin and paid the price for our sin in place of us. And so what you and I do, we look to him by faith and we're saved. Now, can you imagine back here in Numbers 21, Moses says, okay, he, he, he makes this bronze serpent, puts it on a pole and says, just look to that bronze serpent, you'll be healed. Can you imagine somebody going, you know what, man, I don't want to look at that. I, got, I, got, I want to try an herbal remedy. You know, I want to try some herbal stuff, you know. Get, uh, what's that one essence stuff, herbal essence or whatever? Well, anyways, I want to try some of that stuff, you know, this aromatherapy or something, <laughs> you know, whatever. Can you imagine it would be like, you're going to die, buddy, <laughs> doing that. Um, you have to look to the cross. That's the same way with people today. They say, you know, I, I don't want to. It's too easy to look uh, to Jesus. That's silly. I want to do it my own way. I've got my own way to come to heaven, to, to come before the Father. And yet Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me or except through me. So this picture here that we're reading, it's directly, Jesus directly says, this is a picture of me. What's going to happen to me? He says that to Nicodemus. You know, an interesting thing about that whole bronze serpent thing, I was, I'm kind of working my way through the New, new uh, Old Testament, and uh, in Second Kings, I got done with that a little while ago, I'm in Chronicles now, um, I read a, came across this, and I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. King Hezekiah, about 500 years after what we're just reading took place, roughly about 500 years later, King Hezekiah destroys the bronze serpent. So for 500 years, roughly, the children of Israel still had this in their possession, this bronze serpent. But we find out in 2 Kings 18, verse 4, that the children of Israel burned incense to it. They started worshiping this bronze serpent that really was just a picture of the reality of Jesus Christ. And yet they were worshiping a symbol. And for them, it became an idolatrous icon. And, you know, it's interesting. It's sad when people start worshiping the symbols rather than what the symbols represent. That's exactly what's taking place here. Very fascinating. 500 years later, it's still there, and they're, there and they're burning incense to it. Verse 10, Now the children of Israel moved on and camped in Oboth. And they journeyed from Oboth and camped at, uh, whatever that name is, something, Abiram, in the wilderness, which is east of Moab, toward the sunrise. From there they moved and camped in the valley of Zered. From there they moved and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites. For the Arnon is the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites. There it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Waeb in Sufa, the brooks of the Arnon, and the slopes of the brooks that reach, reaches to the dwelling of Ar and lies on the border of Moab. Verse 16, from there they went to Beer, which is the well where the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together and I shall give them water. Then Israel sang this song, spring up, O well, all of you sing to it. The well the leaders sang, dug by the nation's nobles, by the lawgiver with their staves. And from the wilderness they went to Matanah, and from Matanah to Nahalil, and from Nahalil to Bamoth, and from Bamoth in the valley that is in the country of Moab to the top of Pisgah, which looks down on the wasteland. What a difference. What a difference. They're still in a dry and barren land. They're still in a dry place. And instead of murmuring 
and instead of complaining, they worship the Lord. Verse 17, spring up, oh well. I, I love that, you know. That's the choice you and I have. Being, you know, we can, we end up in those places where it's a dry and barren land. We're in a place of where the temptation is to grumble and complain. And we have that choice too. We can grumble or complain or we can worship the Lord. I love it. They, it's like they got the message. They worship the Lord there. Verse 21. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into the fields or vineyards. We will not drink water from the wells. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and went out against Israel in the wilderness. And he came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Then Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession uh, of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok. And as far as the people of Ammon, for the border of the people of Ammon was fortified. So Israel took all these cities, and Israel dwelt in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon and in all its villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who fought against Mo, uh, the former king of Moab and had taken all his land from his hand as far as the Arnon. Therefore, those who speak in Proverbs say, come to Heshbon, let it be built. Let the city of Sihon be repaired. For the fire went out from Heshbon, a flame from the city of Sihon. It consumed Ar of Moab, the lords of the heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, Moab, you have perished, O people of Chemosh. He has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters into captivity to Sihon, king of the Amorites. But we have shot at them. Heshbon has perished as far as Deban. Then we laid waste as far as Nophah, which reaches to Mediba. Thus Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites. Then jo uh, Moses sent to spy out Jazer, and they took its villages and drove out the Amorites who were there. What's being described here, this land that they took, it's known as the Transjordan. It's on the other side of Cana, on the other side of the Jordan. Um, that land, eventually, that's where uh, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh would end up settling there later on. And so, you know, it's, you look at this and you go, uh, you know, it seems kind of similar to what happened in Edom, except here, the difference is Sihon attacks Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 30, it's kind of interesting. It says, but Sihon, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass through for the Lord your God, guard, excuse me, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might deliver him into your hand as it is this day. You read that in Deuteronomy and you go, wow. So God like made Sihon go and attack Israel so that he could be destroyed. Listen, God did not force a good king to do evil, okay? God didn't force a good king to do evil. Just like God didn't make Pharaoh uh, treat, you know, the children of Israel terrible and stuff, and he didn't harden Pharaoh. Well, the Bible says he hardened Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh wasn't a good king. Pharaoh had an evil heart already. This king had an evil heart already. But what's happening is that this is the start of the fulfillment 
that the Lord told uh, Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, when he talks about the fact that uh, that the children of Israel, that, that uh, um, Abraham's descendants, they would go to Egypt, they would be there for four generations. He says, but in the fourth generation, they'll return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So for 400 years, the Lord was merciful towards the Canaanites and the Amorites, all these people, and now judgment is happening and God is using the children of Israel to judge these wicked kings. And so God hardened his heart, but his heart was already hard. God was just allowing him, giving him over to that wicked uh, aspect of his heart already. And so they take this land, which is like I mentioned earlier, is Transjordan. Then we get to verse 30, uh, 31, or excuse me, verse 33. And they turned and went up by, way, by the way to Bashan. So Og, king of Bashan, went out against them, he and all his people, to battle at Edrei. Then the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him into your hand with all his people in his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. So they defeated him, his sons, and all his people until there was no survivor left him, and they took possession of his land. Og was a giant. In Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 11, it describes his bed Get a load of this. His bed was nine cubits long and four cubits wide. You go, okay, what's that? That's 13 and a half feet long, six feet wide. Talk about a king-sized bed. I don't think he had fitted sheets for that. Um, but anyways, uh, huge. Og was a giant. And so, you know, I, I kind of read fast through this, this story about Sihon. And then, of course, King Og here in the last few verses of chapter 21. The Sihon the Amorites, they had captured the land from the Moabites. And, the, and, and so they were a vicious people. They were warriors. They had been successful in, in the wars that they had done. They had taken over the land, and yet Israel defeated them. The Lord blessed them, and they defeated the, the, uh, the Amorites, Sihon, king of the Amorites. And here, Og, again, he's a remnant of the giants of old, and Israel defeated them. They're not in the promised land yet. These two victories that they received right now that we just read, they're going to be reminded of it over and over and over again. Because God gave them victory over some vicious, or God's going to give them victory over vicious Canaanites. They're going to be facing some very, very, their warriors are going to be facing. They're going to be facing more giants. Remember 38 years ago, the children of Israel, they didn't want to go into the land because they said, man, there's giants in the land. Well, God says, hey, I want you to remember this because I'm giving you victory. And as you go forward, you're going to have more battles. You're going to have more challenges, but he's preparing his people. And so that's what he's doing. He wants to remind them. He's preparing them for possessing Canaan. He doesn't want them to fear. He wants them to trust and obey the Lord, and he's going to give them the victory. And so for you and I, as we close to this morning, you and I, do we want a deeper walk with Christ? I trust that we all do. If we're dealing with jealousy in our hearts, if we've uncontrolled tempers, we're dealing with anger, if we're dealing with compromise, we're not, we're compromising to the sin in our lives. If we're impatient, those things are going to keep us from a deeper walk with Christ. 
You know, I think about the situation that we're in in our fellowship, not our fellowship, but every church, every the whole nation. You know, we're dealing with COVID-19. And man, I tell you, I don't know about you, but I'm getting tired of this. It's, it's, I feel like we've been wandering through the wilderness. Doesn't it feel that way? It feels that way to me. It's a dry and barren land, it feels like. Well, here's the deal. We have a choice too. We can grumble. We can complain. We, you know, we can, we can do all that stuff. Or we can worship the Lord and trust him through whatever we're going through and allow the Lord to use us in our lives. Maybe he's trying to build patience into our heart, into our lives. Or maybe he just wants us to trust him more. Or maybe get rid of the junk. that Maybe we've, we've been so distracted by junk, he wants us to focus clearer on him. And so these are the things that I think is a lesson for us as, we, as we've gone through these two chapters this morning. I'll have the worship team, you guys come on up, and we'll, uh, we'll close and... Uh, go from there. I just want to pray for each of us, for those of you that are here in the sanctuary and those that you're watching online. Heavenly Father, we do, Lord, we desire that deeper walk with you. Lord, I know that there's times when we're we're tempted to grumble and complain and Lord it's we could say we're being discouraged but Lord on the other hand maybe we're not being patient Lord this has been a tough time it's been a dry time but Lord you're still faithful and Lord you've still blessed and you've still provided and Lord help us to be mindful of those things that you have given us Lord to be thankful for the things you have given us and Lord that you have blessed us you have sustained us sustained us Lord uh, I think of that even as our own fellowship but Lord as individuals and as families so we thank you for your mercy Lord Lord we trust you to 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 lead us through this dry time and Lord may as we go through this may not be just a, a time of let's endure this but Lord I pray that Lord our worship of you would grow deeper that our joy in you would would just blossom Lord that we would be joyful and worshipers of you through the difficult times that we're facing right now Lord for those of us that are dealing with jealousy Lord, I pray that we would address that in our hearts, Lord God. Lord, that we could enter into that walk, deeper walk with you. Lord, for those of us maybe that are angry, uh, Lord, we, we fly off the temple, or temper, or we, we lose our temper too quickly. Lord, or, or maybe there's a seething anger that's just been, just been kind of under the surface that's been boiling for many, many years because of something that someone's done or something said. And Lord, we're just hanging on to it and clinging. I pray, Lord, even this morning, that we would just let that go. Lord, that we would forgive that person in our hearts and be able to move on from here. Lord, may we, we desire that deeper walk with you, Lord God. So Lord, I just ask that you would just allow us, Lord, and thank you that, Lord, you forgive us, you love us, you're not angry with us. Lord, I thank you <clears throat> that we can just speak to the rock. Lord, that we can come to Jesus Christ and confess our sins, and we can look to you to be healed, Lord God. Thank you for paying the price once and for all for our sin. We love you, Lord, and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close with the last worship song. If you guys want to stand up, we'll worship the Lord together.